Welcome to the CPR podcast. My name is Rohil Sabarwal, and I'm a sophomore here at Columbia studying economics and political science while serving as a senior editor and podcast lead on the Political Review. My name is Alexia Veos, and I'm a first year student at Columbia College planning to study history as well as a staff writer on the Political Review. Today, Rohil and I are joined by Dr. Richard Wolfe, who is a professor of economics emeritus at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and a visiting professor of international affairs at the New School. He is a leading scholar of Marxian economics and his most recent book, The Sickness in the System, is the system, discusses capitalism's glaring inadequacies in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Wolf, thank you so much for joining us today. And just to start things off, I wanted to ask you um, about some of the ideas in your book. Um, the COVID-19 pandemic exposed a number of underlying issues in our society from the cracks in America's social safety net to the unsustainability of rapidly increasing federal deficits and for these reasons, the World Economic Forum has called for a great reset of capitalism. Do you think such a reset could actually occur? And if so, what would that reset look like? Is a more Marxist ideology the solution to the economic insecurities of capitalism exposed by the, by the pandemic? Well, I'm going to make my answers blunt and brief so that we can get through a lot of them. All right. My basic response to the statement is another reset of capitalism question mark, you must be kidding. For me, capitalism has now existed for three or 400 years. It had its best run here in the United States over the last century, during which the US became the world's number one capitalist power. The dollar became the international currency, American production dominated, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You all know the story. It was quite a heady ride up for what had started as a European colony struggling uh, to survive and doing a good bit of ethnic cleansing of the people it found here, as you all know. I am afraid that as an economist who spent my life studying the American economy, there's one basic conclusion I drew, which is why I don't think another reset of capitalism is in the offing. And that is that we're done with the upswing. The American economic dominance, the American capitalist system is now declining. And I know that's a difficult thing for any society, just like it is for any person to face. You've had this wonderful ride up, at least many of you did, and now you face a ride down. And I'm not surprised that for most Americans, the first reaction to the glimmer of an understanding they may have is denial, not facing it, not admitting it. But let me give you from the COVID example, just pick one statistic that screams why we have to look at it. The United States has a population of 330 million people, roughly. That works out to four and a half percent of the world's population. But we account for 16% of the world's deaths from COVID. That's an enormous failure. Failure to prepare, failure to cope. And we're not out of the woods by a long shot yet. What's going on? We are still a very rich country. We were the dominant one until now. We have a highly developed medical care system. 
We have people who know how to prepare. We have people who have the skills. We have the know-how to run and operate hospitals, clinics, and all the rest that you need. We know about pandemics. A hundred years ago, we had the so-called Spanish flu, which was more devastating even than the COVID one we are going through now. And we have had equally bad economic collapses like the Great Depression that we're having similarly now. So we have the history, we have the experience, everything is in place, but the system doesn't work. This system can't bring together the resources, public and private, the skills, the accumulated know-how to meet the needs that we have. You know, an economic system is judged first and foremost can it provide the basic food, clothing, and shelter that its people need? I just read a report today that we have two and a half million homeless children in the United States. I just quoted you that we can't maintain even the public health of our people adequately. This is a system that may be working beautifully for the 5%, the 1% at the top, but for the mass of people, for the majority, which is supposed to count in a democracy, this system, it doesn't need a reset. It's been reformed umpteen times. We need a new system. And the sooner we discuss that and debate it in economics classrooms, in our universities, in our media, the better chance we have to deal with the down, the decline period of our society, rather than having it produce horrible social divisions, tensions, the return of ugly uh, phenomena of our past, white supremacy and all the rest of it. So for me, no, a reset is a little too little and is way too late. So kind of building off of that, um, as an economics student here at Columbia, since as far back as my introductory economics course, <laughs> I've been taught that for low-income, third-world countries to develop and increase standards of living, they must first work on promoting free market laissez-faire principles. I've been taught that like successful developmental economic policy is absolutely rooted in free market capitalism. So my question then is how can Marxist ideology fit into developmental economic theory as an alternative to capitalism? Well, let me begin, uh, and this is a field that I have specialized in also. And let me, and I only tell you this because I don't want anyone to imagine that I'm not somehow trained in, in neoclassical or Keynesian economics. Uh, I went to Harvard as an undergraduate then I got a master's in economics at Stanford, and my PhD in economics is from Yale. So I'm a poster boy for elite education in this country. And I want you to understand, they told me the kinds of nonsense you just articulated, and you're quite right. That is the story that the, every course teaches. So I'm not surprised that you were taught that. But I was taught that too. And I kept raising questions which they didn't answer. So I'm a bigger critic of capitalism uh, today than I was then. And I was getting into it already then. They couldn't do it. And I gave them every chance. So let me begin as follows. One country, I'm going to pick out one. I could pick others but I'm gonna pick out one. 
One country never followed that advice, and it isn't following it now either. It didn't get foreign aid. It didn't get private investment for most of its history. And yet it is the most successful story of economic development on earth. The People's Republic of China. It went from one of the poorest countries carved up by the colonial powers that took some cities on the coast and some parts of the north, humiliated that country for centuries. All of that was rejected. Everything you just said was rejected. They made a revolution in 1949, the Communist Party leading the revolution. They transformed that society. And today it is, let me repeat, the most successful story of economic development that we have. Just to nail it down a couple of times. Over the last 30 to 40 years, the average annual growth of GDP in the United States has been between 2 and 3% per year. Over that exact same time, the annual growth of GDP in the People's Republic of China has averaged between 6 and 9%. They have consistently grown three times faster than we have, which is why they've closed the gap which is why they are now the second most important economy. And by the end of this decade, they will be number one. Um, that Americans can't face it, can't admit it, even though these statistics are available by two clicks on Google at any time you want. In case you're wondering, the real wage of the American working class, real wages have been stagnant for the last 30 years. If they've risen at all, it's on the, on the level of half a percent a year. And if you know about statistics, you'll know that that's not a significant number. Over the last 25 years, the average real wage of the working class in China has quadrupled. There is no contest. The route that the Chinese followed, condemned at every point, by all the people who made up the story that they told you in class, they're the success. And the countries who followed that advice, they're the failures. They're the ones who are struggling with being even poorer relatively to the advanced countries of the world than they were back then when all of this started. And one last point, people who know these statistics try to play a little game. And just in case you encounter this game, let me refute it right now. Here's the game. 25 years ago, the Chinese made a decision to admit and to permit private capitalist enterprises. That part is true. And they permitted it to Chinese citizens and they permitted it to foreigners, Japanese, American, British, French, German capitalists. And so those people came to China. They closed their factories and offices in Western Europe, North America, and Japan, and they moved to Shanghai, Guangdong, and all the other industrial corners of China. And so some people, all of that's true. So some people use that to say, oh, you see, well, they grew quickly because they brought in private capitalists. This is nonsense because they kept 
a huge public sector, way larger than anything in the United States, the United Kingdom, or any place like that. Socialism has always included a model in which you mix public enterprises and private enterprises with a very big role for the public. Every country in Scandinavia is like that. France, Germany, Italy, they're like that. China is like them. The proportions vary. But here's the most, the biggest irony. Over the last few years, even before COVID, the rate of growth in China slowed down. Instead of six to nine, it was around six, five to seven, slowed down. The proportion of the economy in private capitalist hands kept going up, but the rate of growth slowed down. So the notion that the only way to explain China's stunning growth is by somehow mesmerizing people into thinking somehow capitalism approached, went to China and did it for them, that's the desperate attempt to get away from the Chinese model of modern economics, which is a powerful central government run by a powerful communist party, which organizes how the society develops. Final example for you, COVID, COVID. The Communist Party of China mobilized both public and private resources to fight against the pandemic just as we did in this country. And now let's compare the results. China has four times the population of the United States. Instead of 330 million, it's 1.3, 1.4 billion people in China. We've had 775,000 dead people. Depending on which statistic you look at, China's dead people, a country four times larger than ours is between five and 8,000 people. This, we're not talking a race that's close. This race is over and it may take a while. And Americans ability to deny reality is stunning, I admit. But these differences in performance mean that if you're a poor country, if you're part of what we used to call the third world in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and you want a model of how to become rich instead of poor, how to grow, how to become a powerful force, your model is the People's Republic of China, not copying the West, which has been the advice that has left so many of those societies so poor that we still look at them through the lens of the National Geographic magazine. All right, and for the next question, um, looking back now at the US presidential election of 2016, uh, Donald Trump rode a wave of anti-progressive fear-mongering to the White House. Um, but how do you make sense class-wise of the economic lean leanings of Mr. Trump's core voter base? Despite much of this base not, belo not belonging to the top 1% of American earners, how can one explain their staunch support for capitalism? What significance does the Marxist class struggle have when much of the American working class have no qualms about the current capitalist system we live in? 
Yes, well, you know, uh, for me, the answer is clear. I was born in Ohio. I've lived and worked all my life in the United States. Ohio is kind of, you know, the middle. Uh, I live on the East Coast now, but, but I, I've, I've worked in California. I mean, I've been all over. And the, my first response to you is, I think the American mass of the American people are very aware of who the problem for them is. You know, when you get fired, when you get fired, it's, a, it's an employer who fires you. It's not the government. It's not someone in China. It's your good old American employer who's telling you not to come back Monday morning because you're done. If you look at the people who have lost their homes over the last 10 years, it's the lenders who kicked them out. The landlords and the lenders from whom they got a mortgage that they couldn't pay that threw them out. Not China, not the U.S. government, but private banks and other lenders. Let's be clear. We're currently all a tither about an inflation, a rising uh, prices in our economy. And I'm in the business of having to go on television, which I do several times a day, having to explain to people what they already know. Who sets prices in this country? If you want to understand that inflation, you ask first, well, who sets the prices? Guess what? Employees, the vast majority of us, we don't. Read the job description of everybody who's employed. It doesn't include setting prices. You know who sets prices? The employer class of people. And they amount to maybe one or two percent of our population. They're the ones who have decided to raise prices. That's why we have an inflation. So let's not play games here. Let's not do the economic classroom two-step dance procedure where we teach students it could be cost push inflation or it could be demand pull inflation. You know what those two stories leave out? the capitalist who actually sets the price. And let's ask the simple question, why would a capitalist raise a price? Well, why does a capitalist do anything? If you go to business school, even at Columbia, and you get your MBA, you know what you learn in business? I taught in business schools. You learn that capitalism is a profit-driven system, that the way you are to make a decision if you're in management is what is the most profitable way to go, how you invest, how you or choose technology, whatever it is. So let's answer the question, why do capitalists raise prices? Answer, because that's what's profitable to them to do. And if you don't like the inflation, it is a stunning achievement of self-imposed ignorance to talk about all these big forces, supply chain disruptions. Oh, give me a break. Prices are set by employers. They are a tiny minority. Prices are confronted by us, the vast majority. We have no say. We can either pay them and get it, whatever we're buying, or we can say it's too high a price, and then we do without. We, the people, have to live with prices set by a tiny minority we do not elect or have any 
control over. Capitalism is the enemy of democracy, and it always was. That's why when you take a job anywhere, you cross the threshold into a place where a tiny group of people at the top, the owner, uh, the board of directors of the company, whatever it is, a tiny minority, tell you what to do, how to do, where to do, sit over there, work with that machine, use this raw material. And at the end of the day, after you've poured your brains, your muscle into producing whatever that company produces, they tell you to go home. You don't own what you produce. You've got to get out of there. If you take home with you any of the stuff you produced, they'll send the police and it will not be fun. So you learn early on not to do that. Your job is to go home, drink beer, eat pizza, and come back the next day and work your tail off again for them. Why you accept it is the question all Marxists agonize over. I think the American people know exactly what I'm saying, and I think they agree with me. But they're smart people, and they know that up until recently, people who talk like me are people that are scary for them because they know that's not acceptable. You don't talk like that. You don't say those things. You repeat what the bosses tell you to say. Oh, the problem is... Uh, Mr. Trump or Mr. Biden, these are all puppets. You know, you're old enough to know the difference between a puppet and a puppeteer. One of them looks like they're active, but the other one holds all the strings. Corporate America holds the strings. Trump, Biden, they're just dancing at the end of a string. And that's a, that's all they've ever done. And that's true for Mr. Trump, as it is for Mr. Biden. Indeed, if you look at who donates to the two campaigns, the same folks are pulling the strings for both of them. It's almost as if they know that the way to keep us from thinking differently is to have two versions of the same story. So we can pick between them. Mr. Biden loves capitalism. Kamala Harris loves capitalism. Donald Trump loves capitalism. Uh, that's the story. By the way, you might enjoy the following fact. When I was a little bit younger, I worked with a wonderful economist, an African-American, he happened to be, named Donald Harris. He was a professor at Stanford, where I also studied, a really good Marxist economist taught me a lot. Donald Harris. That's Kamala Harris's father. Think about it. Think about it. I guess my next question, based on what you said, is that the U.S. is currently running a little bit above a 6% inflation rate. Right. And there's this like popular notion all around that everywhere in the world, like the global inflation rate is very high. But in Europe, it's about half that. Germany, it's at 2.8 something. And my question is, why is the U.S. running such a high inflation rate when the rest of the world isn't really struggling with that? German standards of living are rising because wages are rising faster than inflation. Why is it happening 
so much in the US and it's not necessarily a global phenomenon, even in the West, which is supposedly as capitalist as we are? Very good question. Let me first though, pick up on the first part of what you said, where you were right, but I think there's more that can be said and, and I just wanna say it briefly. Why would, the, would, would you have American politicians by the way, simply straight out lying that this is, you know, inflation is everywhere. No, it isn't. You just made that up because you don't want the American people to ask the question you're asking, which is, A, why isn't it so bad over there? And B, why are we not telling each other about that and having a conversation to understand it, if for no other reason than to figure out what might be going on over there that we're not doing here so we wouldn't have this inflation. Okay, so let me now answer the question. I could give you, and I'm not going to, all kinds of statistics on what government policies are in Europe, and there are some differences. But then you would only ask, and you'll quite intelligently do so, why are all those differences? So let me get right to, to what the differences are. And they are fundamentally economic and political. I'm going to start by, again, telling you something you should know, but you probably don't. I'm going to take one very big economy in Europe, Germany, and one very little one, Portugal, because Europe is a mixture of these two kinds of economy. And one is in the north and one is in the south. So they give me a spread. And, but I'm picking them for a different reason. I want to tell you about the government of each of these two countries. Three and a half weeks ago, there was an election in Germany, a president, you know, a, a national election for the parliament. Do you know what party got the most votes and will now form the government? of Germany. And I, I'm going to do the answer because we don't have time. It's the Socialist Party of Germany, SPD. It means in German, Sozialistische Partei Deutschland, because in Germany, the word for their country is Deutschland, not the English Germany. Okay? It's a socialist government. The, the, the replacement for Angela Merkel, who was the leader of Germany, is Olaf Schultz, who is a socialist and has been all his life. Now let me turn to the Portuguese government, which is going to blow your socks off. This is a government that was elected in 2016, and it was re-elected with a bigger vote last year in 2020. It is a coalition government composed of three of Portugal's political parties. The largest member of the coalition, get ready, is the Portuguese Socialist Party. The second largest party in the coalition is the Portuguese Communist Party. And the third party of the coalition that governs that country is the Portuguese Green Party. Try to imagine Americans understanding that part of our alliance with NATO in Europe is with the government that's composed of socialists, communists, and greens. Well, most Americans, when I explain this, look at me. Their mouths fall open. They don't know what to say. Why am I telling you this? Because it's the answer. In every European country, 
underscore every European country, even England. There are socialists who have big, fat, strong organizations. They have political parties that are serious contenders for power. And as I just showed you, are in power. And by the way, those are not the only two countries where they're in power. They are also working closely with very powerful trade unions that represent millions and millions of workers. I like to tell people that go to France and they of course go to Paris as tourists. And one of the things they look at is the spectacular uh, subway system, the metro that's in Paris. It's very beautiful, it's very quiet. It teaches you what a subway system could be. And since I live in New York and you do, we have the example of how not to have one, right? So we get the contrast. But the reason I would urge you to take a ride on the Paris subway, besides its beauty and besides what it teaches you, is that the people who work there, the conductor, the people who punch your ticket, they're all members of a communist union, and they have been for the last 50 years. You're being driven around Paris by communists. Can you imagine? Well, the reason I tell you this is simple. You can't do to the mass of the working class when it's organized into powerful socialist organizations, what you can get away with when it isn't. The success of American capitalism was to eviscerate the socialist movement, to destroy the labor movement, to smash it down, which it did after World War II. If you ever wanna learn it, just go read the history of the 40s and 50s starting with something called the Taft-Hartley Act to destroy unions. We have been under the gun, smashing the socialism. So our businesses can do whatever they want. You know what percentage of private employees are represented by a union in the United States now? Six and a half percent. Over 93% of the private employees much the largest sector of our economy, are not in a union and are not represented by a union. The unions are much stronger in Europe. They're closely allied with the socialist and communist parties. That's why they have the power, and that's why you can't get the kind of ripoff that you can in this country. If the working class in this country mobilized itself the way it did, by the way, in the 1930s and the way it even did earlier, everything in this country would change. It is the only way it's going to change. As long as you allow this government and this private sector to promote ideologically, educationally, on the media, all of the nonsense and junk that prevents the working class from building exactly the same kind of organizations it has done in virtually every other capitalist country. Until we do that, this country will be more and more different, but no longer in a, gl a glowing way or no longer in a growing way, but in a long-term economic decline.
Let me illustrate it with a couple of statistics. I'm going to draw from France, because even though I was born in the United States, my parents were immigrants. My father is French, was French, and my mother was born in Berlin, Germany. Before I spoke English, just personally, I spoke French and German at home because that's what my parents spoke. So I keep track of those two countries just because it's part of my personal history. So here's the law in France, it's very similar in Germany. Once you graduate from high school or college in France and you enter the labor force, there's a law that applies to you. The law says you must be paid your full salary five weeks every year during which you are on vacation. In other words, every employer has to give every employee five weeks of paid vacation. Not after 20 years of hard service. No, no, no. From day one. You know who produced that? The socialists. They passed that law and made that certain. Now, let me choose an example that will strike closer to home, Germany. But what I'm about to tell you is true of seven other countries in Europe besides Germany. In Germany, where the major universities are all public, and the vast majority of people go to a public school, I say that because I want to poke you a little bit since you're going to Columbia, which isn't public. But if you go to public university in Germany, the tuition you'll be interested to know is zero. There is no tuition. There are no fees. It costs nothing to get a degree. And let me assure you in case you're wondering, and I say this as a graduate of Harvard, Stanford, and Yale, the quality of education in Germany has nothing to apologize for in comparison to what we do here. Zero. The Germans not only give their own people free education, both of you could get free education because it's open to everyone, whether you're a German citizen or not. And the last time I looked, over 20,000 young Americans like you are studying in Germany because it's free. And it means you get your BA or your MA without a level of debt that will haunt you for the rest of your life. And seven other countries do the same. France, you have to pay. You ready? $280 per semester. That's the whopping amount of money you got to give to get an education in Paris, France. Now, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but you have to ask yourself as students the same question American workers have to ask themselves. Why in the world do you tolerate this? You are being made to have agonies over getting an education and getting all those debts and squeezing your parents' funds to be able to pay or building up a level of debt that's going to haunt you, make you not get married or, or have a good relationship because you can't afford it. Put the question of children right out of your mind because how in the world can you pay for it? And these are decisions being made by people your age every day all around you. 
how do you allow this to be done? Meanwhile, you sit in front of a television a few weeks ago, watching the two billionaires play with their money as to who can sit in a rocket ship for eight and a half minutes and fly around in the air with an amount of money spent on that nonsense that could have saved 50,000 students a level of debt that is holding back their education and thereby the future of this country. Let me drive that last point home. Every economist I know, left-winger, right-winger, you name it, understands that the future of the United States in a world economy depends on nothing more than the quality and quantity of its educated young people. You're the future. Let me try to finish it this way. Uh, the German idea, which is behind their making free education, a free higher education available, not just to German citizens, is that it is good for Germany's future to educate people, uh, its own people for sure, but even people elsewhere who will have an understanding, a feeling for Germany and what Germany is all about, that this will be a good investment in the future both investing in their own young people and even in folks from outside. And all I can tell you is everything in economics indicates that that's a reasonable way to look at this. You know, we maintain public parks because it makes the life of a city more agreeable to have a place where you can sit under a tree or have a picnic with your friends or, or do it, right? We do that and, and we have clean streets for that reason. And we do, well, why in the world are we not educating our people? We even as a society understand the importance because we make kindergarten through 12th grade free basically for most Americans uh, if they want it. It's a, because we believe in education. The only difference between Europe is they continue it for college and university, which is the same friggin' logic. Why not, why not see that as an investment? Why not only not give your students that kind of help, but give them the burden of raising the prices, imposing, therefore, borrowing because you don't pay people enough to afford to pay for their kids' education, so you force the indebtedness on them, or they do without education. This is self-destructive. And you know, my wife's a psychotherapist, so I lean on that kind of, she's taught me a lot. So one of the things I understand is Americans are as smart as everybody else. Americans understand things more or less the way other people do. We're not not notably stupid or backward. So what are we doing? What explains this self-destructive behavior? It makes no sense. It was the same reaction I had earlier this year when President Biden and a lot of others kept talking about updating our infrastructure. I scratched my head again. Every American knows that if you don't want to lose your car, you better change the oil periodically. And if you hear a funny noise in the motor, go get a mechanic to figure out what it is and fix it. You know, if, if, the, if the hose in the back of the yard that you use to water your flowers sprouts a leak, you know, you, you do something to maintain the infrastructure. 
So what are you what are you saying about a society that didn't do that? You know, that doesn't do that. China, again, the example. China has three quarters of the world's rapid train tracks. The United States has none, zero. All major Chinese cities are connected by super fast trains. No American cities are connected by super fast trains. The, the fastest there is, as you may know, is the Acela, which goes from Boston to DC. And I've taken that a bunch of times. It's faster than the usual, but not a lot. Nothing like the TGV, which is all over Europe, the super fast trains they have, or the Chinese trains. The United States is, is falling behind left and right everywhere the minute you open your eyes to see it. No one wants that. No American wants it. But it's happening anyway. That's a sign of system failure. System. We couldn't get it together to defeat COVID to do as well as the Chinese, you know, they have eight, six, seven, eight thousand people dead. We have a hundred times that, and our population is a quarter of it. I mean, it is mind-bending. And only denial and a media that will not deal with it. Let me conclude with something that happened today. Here it is. A former Republican candidate for president a man named Mitt Romney, who's currently a senator uh, from the great state of Utah. He attacked publicly uh, a billionaire hedge fund operator, very well known, named Ray Dalio. You, you go later and check your Google, you'll see all the stories about it. What did he attack him for? Ray Dalio, who manages many billions of dollars, extremely uh, successful uh, hedge fund manager, is investing huge amounts of money, his clients' money. A hedge fund you, it manages the money for clients, big corporations, wealthy individuals, university endowments, things like that. And he's been investing heavily and promises to do more of it in China, because that's where the future is he says, and that's my job, is to invest where the wealth is going to grow. So Mitt Romney attacked him for saying, here we go, and this is what he said, that Mr. Dalio feigns ignorance of the abuses carried out by the Chinese government. What I assume he means is the story of the Uyghur people, a min, uh, Muslim minority in one corner of China, and maybe uh, Hong Kong. Let's put those two together. Okay, this is an extraordinary remark. The United States, <laughs> let's just go through it. Not only have we slaughtered 775,000 of our own people and gave millions more a disease that will have lifelong uh, ramifications for their bodies, whereas the Chinese have done nothing of the sort. But we are angry at the Chinese for mistreating, which they may well be doing, I don't know, mistreating a Muslim minority, which when I did the research, a number somewhere between 9 and 11 million people. 
And where is this coming from? From a senator who was an enthusiastic supporter of the last two wars of the United States. Let me remind you, one in Afghanistan and one in Iraq, two, get ready, Muslim countries where the United States slaughtered more people than anyone has accused the Chinese of doing. What is going on here? This is so nutty, so crazy, that you begin to wonder about a society which will allow this which will not only allow a senator to talk this junk, but will have the New York Times and the other usual organs patting them on the back. Oh, yeah, the Chinese are not treating these Muslim people. What? What? By the way, I read European newspapers every day. It's part of my work. They make fun of this country. They scratch their heads and think we're going crazy. The parts of my family that are still living there write to me, assuring me that if I need to, I can bring my wife and my two children and they will have a place for me to stay if this country gets any weirder than they already find it to be. Every time a high school student in this country goes and shoots up his school, like happened the other day in, I don't remember, Colorado or Ohio or wherever that was, I get another email. Because for them, Mr. Romney's weird notion of morality and everything I've told you this evening put together with uh, the gun nuts nuttiness of this country, I mean, the whole rest of the world is shaking its head. And the only thing that capped that off was having one of the people they consider to be completely crazy become the president of this country under you know, Trump. So you, you better understand your generation, you really can't afford to live in the cloudy, denial universe um, that, that that unfortunately this society's fear of facing its decline is generating. Thank you so much. That's a great point. And I think that is all the time we have for today. So I just wanted to say thank you so much for sitting down with us, Dr. Wolf. And it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. 